You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 298, The Battle of the Capes. Now, last week we covered the Continental and French efforts to concentrate their forces on the British Southern Army at Yorktown. In order for those armies to be successful, they had to deny the British Navy control of the waters around Yorktown. Throughout the war, the British Navy had dominated the waters off the coast of North America. The Continentals could do little but occasionally pick off isolated ships. They really couldn't compete with the British Navy. To contest British control of the sea, General Washington had to await the arrival of the French fleet under Admiral de Grasse. That fleet was in the West Indies and was expected in North America in the fall of 1781. Admiral Francois-Joseph Paul de Grasse was an experienced 53-year-old naval veteran. He came from French nobility, tracing his family back nearly a thousand years. His father, the Marquis de Grasse, served as a captain in the French army. Francois-Joseph Paul joined the Knights of Malta at age 11, seeing early combat against the Turks and Moors. At age 16, he joined the French Navy, and during the War of Austrian Succession, de Grasse was taken prisoner by the British for two years. Upon his return, he received promotion to lieutenant and served in the East Indies. By the end of the Seven Years' War, de Grasse had become an experienced naval captain. And when France entered the war with Britain in 1778, de Grasse led fleets at the Battle of Ushant and against the British fleet near Granada. He assisted the Americans in the failed siege of Savannah in 1779 and also served in the West Indies under Admiral d'Estaing. After his return to France in 1780, de Grasse took some time off to recover from injuries and illness. In March 1781, he received promotion to admiral and was given command of 23 ships of the line. His mission was to protect French island colonies in the West Indies and to capture British colonies there. Almost immediately after his arrival in the West Indies, de Grasse's fleet contested with the British fleet a few months later, the French captured the British-controlled island of Tobago. The mission for de Grasse did not really involve the war in North America. France's naval focus was the fight with the British for control of valuable island colonies in the West Indies and elsewhere. Army General Rochambeau had been sent to America with the explicit task of supporting, some say propping up, the Continental Army. French Admiral Jacques de Barras provided naval support for Rochambeau in North America. Admiral de Grasse's assignment was really separate from what was happening in North America. He was focused on other goals, primarily in the West Indies. Now that said, late summer and early fall was a bad time for the any Navy to be in the West Indies. It was the height of hurricane season. 
Since hurricanes could arrive with little notice and were known to destroy fleets, it made sense to get out of that area during hurricane season. Knowing this, in June, de Grasse received multiple requests from North America asking for the help of his fleet. The American Privateer Congress brought Continental Major John McLean to de Grasse's flagship. Major McLean was tasked by General Washington to convince de Grasse to bring his fleet up to New York and assist in a combined Continental and French Army capture of Manhattan. McLean's goal was to persuade de Grasse to sail up and take New York Harbor and assist the combined Continental and French armies to defeat the British under General Clinton and capture the city of New York. Some accounts of McLean's mission indicate he was there to persuade de Grasse to sail up to the Chesapeake, but it appears to be the way that the orders got spun after the fact. When Washington dispatched McLean, Washington still very much wanted the fight to come to New York, not Virginia. However, McLean also brought dispatches from French General Rochambeau to Admiral de Grasse. Technically, Rochambeau's letters were supposed to support Washington's goal of taking New York. Instead, Rochambeau focused on the goal of capturing the British Army in Virginia, and then suggested perhaps afterwards they could sail up to New York and finish the job. That, of course, was highly unlikely. Even if the French fleet had the time and ability to fight two such campaigns, the Continental and French armies would not really have time to be in both locations before the French fleet had to return to the West Indies. Rochambeau phrased his letters in respectful and diplomatic language, but reading between the lines, what Rochambeau was telling de Grasse was that Rochambeau was under orders to support whatever Washington wanted to do, but de Grasse was not. The Admiral should focus on the Chesapeake and ignore the naive General Washington's hopes of retaking New York. Certainly that was what de Grasse took as his strategy after the meeting with McLean and after reading Rochambeau's letters. In his responses, de Grasse informed Washington and Rochambeau that he would sail for the Chesapeake Bay in August, but would have to be back in the West Indies in October. This gave the Allies a pretty narrow window to attack and defeat the British Army in Virginia. One interesting side note to Major McLean's trip was that on his return trip to America, he sailed again on the Privateer Congress, which came up the coast of North America, and the Congress came across the British naval ship, the Savage, commanded by Captain Charles Sterling. The Savage was a small British sloop with 14 six-pounder cannons and a crew of about 125 sailors. This was actually the same ship that had sailed up the Potomac River and threatened Mount Vernon a few months earlier. On its current mission, the Savage was escorting a supply fleet on its way to British-occupied Charleston. When the Savage spotted the Congress, Captain Sterling thought it was a smaller privateer that had been harassing British shipping in the area, and he sailed to engage. As the two ships got closer, Sterling quickly realized that his target was much larger. The Congress had 20 12-pounder cannons and four six-pounders. Its crew of over 200 included a sizable complement of Continental Marines. Once the British commander realized he was outclassed, he turned his ship away and tried to escape. The Congress pursued and came within cannon range by late morning. After another half hour, the ships were close enough for Marines to fire muskets at the enemy ship. The Savage returned flyer at close range, and both t ships took heavy damage. 
The Congress took so much damage to its rigging that it had to back off a while so the crew could make quick repairs, but then it resumed battle. After an hour or so, the Congress pulled alongside the Savage so the Marines could board. As they prepared for the final assault, the British surrendered. The fighting had been pretty brutal. The British lost 9 killed and 34 wounded. The Americans lost 11 killed and 30 wounded. And the Americans took control of the British ship and put a prize crew aboard. Now, the Congress made it back to port, but the Savage struggled. The prize crew attempted to sail the badly damaged ship north, but after a week, the British frigate Solbay encountered the Savage, and the British recaptured the ship and took the prize crew as prisoners. Back in the West Indies, Admiral de Grasse made plans to bring his entire fleet up to the Chesapeake. He scrambled to collect money, which came primarily in the form of a loan from the Spanish people in Havana, which I described last week. On August 18th, the fleet sailed from Cuba toward Virginia. About a week into the trip, they encountered three small British Navy ships, which they captured. One of these ships was taking Lord Ralden back to Britain after he left South Carolina. Recall that Lord Ralden had been the overall British commander in South Carolina after General Cornwallis headed north. After losing most of his outposts in South Carolina to General Nathaniel Green's Continentals and the South Carolina militia, and also being sick with malaria, Lord Ralden hoped to sail home to London. As a result of his capture at sea, Ralden became a French prisoner of war, along with the rest of the crews of the three captured ships. On August 28th, the fleet was just outside of the Chesapeake. A group of loyalists, thinking the fleet was British, rode out to greet them and were promptly taken prisoner. A few days later, on September 1st, the fleet offloaded the about 3,300 French soldiers under the command of the Marquis de Saint-Simon that the Navy had brought to America. During this time, de Grasse noted that the British forces at Yorktown observed their movements, but made no effort to attack them or disrupt their landings. The Admiral noted, quote, The English general might have prevented us from doing anything and even repulsed us had he not despised our small army. At our first encampment, it would have been annihilated if attacked. Even being unmolested, it took the army three days to connect with the Continentals under General Lafayette. Personally, de Grasse was actually almost killed in a careless accident. While going ashore, his boat capsized, and he could not swim. Fortunately, the boat capsized near a sandbar, which was in about four feet of water, and the Admiral was able to walk to shore, although completely soaked. The remainder of the fleet continued to arrive and position itself over the first few days of September. They managed to seize several British ships attempting to escape out of the Chesapeake. On September 3rd, de Grasse sent four of his ships into the bay to seek out and capture a number of merchant ships that were still in the bay. The French Navy had secured the waters around Yorktown, but were still awaiting another fleet under the Count de Barras. That smaller fleet had been in Rhode Island, protecting the French camp at Newport. It included eight ships of the line, as well as numerous smaller ships. De Barras was a friend of the Count d'Estaing, and considered de Grasse a rival. Also, de Barras outranked de Grasse, and de Grasse had been given overall command of the operation, so serving under an officer that was junior to him was seen as an insult. As a result, de Barras really had no desire to link up with the de Grasse fleet, 
Washington had originally hoped that Debarras would sail the French army down to the Chesapeake, but Debarras refused. His fleet remained in New England as the French and Continental armies marched overland. Rochambeau and Washington had hoped that Debarras would at least transport some of the heavy artillery that they needed in Yorktown. The French admiral's stubborn refusal to leave New England as promptly as others would have liked ended up working in the Americans' favor. The British fleet at New York did not sail for the Chesapeake because they were still monitoring the French fleet under Debarras. That French fleet remained in New England, and that was evidence to General Clinton that the march toward Yorktown was really just a ruse and that the enemy forces might still be planning an attack on New York. Another theory was that the fleet under de Grasse would sail all the way up to Newport, Rhode Island, before the combined French fleets sailed elsewhere. It was only after de Barris finally left port in late August that the British fleet finally left New York. Even then, the British chased after de Barris, who sailed east out into the open Atlantic rather than sailing south. The British hoped to capture and defeat this smaller fleet before it could link up with de Grasse's fleet. There was also a second British fleet in the West Indies that had been fighting with the French fleet under de Grasse all spring and summer. This British fleet in the West Indies was under the command of Admiral George Rodney. But in early August, Rodney sailed for England with a small part of the fleet, leaving the remainder under the command of Admiral Samuel Hood. The fleet under Hood arrived in the Chesapeake a few days before the French under Admiral de Grasse. The British admiral had sent instructions to New York to have a frigate meet him there so that they could coordinate strategy. His instructions never arrived because the ship carrying them was attacked by privateers. So when Admiral Hood saw no frigate at the Chesapeake, he continued sailing his fleet up to New York. As a result, when the French fleet under de Grasse arrived at the Chesapeake a few days later, they found it virtually uncontested. On August 31st, three days after de Grasse arrived at the Chesapeake, the combined British fleet under Admirals Grave and Hood sailed out of New York. They took 19 ships of the line, thinking that they would outnumber and outgun the French fleet, which would have left some of their ships in the West Indies. The British thought they were going to probably face a fleet of around 14 French ships of the line. In fact, thanks to Spanish cooperation, de Grasse had taken his entire fleet, which included 28 ships of the line. When the British frigate Solibay spotted the French fleet on the morning of September 5th, its captain counted 24 French ships of the line. The other four were still sailing away from the main fleet in the Chesapeake. That put the British leaders on notice that they were facing a fleet that was larger than their own. Even so, Admiral Graves had the wind on his side and had time to attack the lead French ships before the rest could get into position and form a line of battle. For some reason, he delayed. Admiral Hood later reported that Graves had about an hour and a half to demolish the French vanguard before the rest of the enemy fleet arrived. Instead, he spent that time adjusting his fleet and waiting for the French to approach him. The French received intelligence of the approaching British fleet only a short time before the fleet was upon them. They hoped to take them on in battle out in an open sea, but unfavorable winds and tides made it difficult for much of the fleet to get to the ocean quickly. By early afternoon, both fleets came into contact and were formed into lines of battle. Due to some confusion over flag signals, 
The rear of the fleet under Admiral Hood formed a line behind that of Graves' ships rather than the parallel line that Graves expected. Several of the French ships were still struggling to get out of the bay. It wasn't until about 4.15 in the afternoon that the ships came into firing range with one another and began opening up with their cannons. Within minutes, the lead British ship, the Shrewsbury, suffered heavy damage and was out of the fight. The next few British ships in line also took damage, but returned fire, inflicting heavy damage on the lead French ships as well. After a little over an hour, Hood finally figured out that he no longer had to remain in the line that he thought was required by Graves' flag commands, and his portion of the fleet entered the battle. The damaged lead French ships veered away from the battle, leaving a large number from the center of the line to continue the fight. By evening, Admiral Graves called off the fight and withdrew. The French fleet did not pursue. Graves had intended to renew the fight the following morning, but after getting reports from each of his ships, he reconsidered. Five of the ships were too badly damaged to continue the fight, one so badly that it ended up having to be scuttled. Graves could view the French fleet only a few miles away and believed that the enemy had suffered far less damage than his own fleet. Both fleets spent the following day, September 6th, repairing their ships and tending to the wounded. British records later reported 82 killed and 232 wounded. French records don't give a detailed breakdown, but do give a total of 209 casualties. That evening, Admiral Graves met with Admiral Hood to discuss the battle and next steps. Graves was upset that Hood had not entered the battle until very late in the day. Hood argued that Graves' flags were effectively orders that he stay in line behind Graves. While Graves conceded that was what the flag meant, Hood should have used his better judgment. Hood, however, was used to serving under Admiral Rodney, who never would have tolerated subordinates using their own judgment like that. The result was that Graves' ships at the front of the line had taken the brunt of the damage, and that Hood's ships in the rear had taken almost none. In fact, none of the ships in Hood's division reported a single casualty. The British fleet would still have been outnumbered and outgunned, even if several of their ships of the line were not out of commission, and at that point, Hood recommended returning to New York. But Graves rejected that plan. While the two fleets kept in sight of each other, they moved far enough out to sea that they could not see the mouth of the Chesapeake anymore. On September 7th, Graves sent two British frigates to determine how many additional French ships remained in the Chesapeake. Over the next couple of days, the two sides continued to drift further out to sea. Finally, Graves conceded on September 13th that they needed to return to New York to regroup and repair. The French fleet under de Grasse returned to the Chesapeake, only to find another fleet guarding the entrance to the bay. After some moments of concern, de Grasse determined that the fleet was, in fact, the French fleet under de Barris that had arrived from New England. With the British withdrawal, the French Navy maintained undisputed control of the Chesapeake Bay and of the Atlantic coast of Virginia. The American and French armies around Yorktown continued to grow as more regiments arrived from the march from New York, and local militia began to turn out in larger numbers. Inside the British camp at Yorktown, General Cornwallis was finally beginning to realize the predicament that he faced. Even so, he believed that he could hold out until another British relief force returned to assist his army. 
And we'll see how that goes next week when we cover the Siege of Yorktown. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show, part of the Airwave Media Network. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, John Celentano, Michael Mulhern, and the Sons of the American Revolution. Be sure to check out the SAR's website at fastfunhistory.com. Thanks to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Joe Kelsey and Patrick LeBeau. And welcome to our newest supporter at the Standard Bearer level last month, Mark Bowen. Everyone who supports this podcast on Patreon at the $10 level or higher will receive a Revolutionary War magnet each month. I now have over 50 different flags from the war, so some folks are getting quite the collection. Also thanks to Nigel Taplin, Sean Beggs, and Michael Parvis for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. I know I say this a lot, but I really do appreciate everyone who does provide financial support for this podcast. As most of you know, I began doing this full-time last year, and this is a really important project to me, and I really hope that I can see it through to the end. If you become a supporter of the podcast on Patreon for as little as $2 a month, you can enjoy commercial-free versions of the podcast. You can also subscribe to the Into History Network, which gives you commercial-free access to not only this podcast, but a whole number of different history podcasts. Just go to intohistory.com if you want more details on that option. And finally, for people who want to listen to these podcasts but don't want to spend a lot of money, absolutely welcome to listen. I really appreciate it that you do. If you shop on Amazon, one thing you can do to help out is click on a book link whenever you go to do shopping at Amazon. You don't have to buy the book. You just have to start your connection to Amazon through one of my links. I get a commission for everything you buy on Amazon during that purchase, and every little bit helps, so I really do appreciate it if you can do that. It's a great way to give a little money to the podcast without spending anything you weren't going to spend already. We had a great time with everyone who participated in the American Revolution Roundtable on Zoom last week. 
our discussion was about ancestry and how it impacts our view of the Revolutionary War era. Our special guest at the roundtable was Tracy Lawson, who has written a novel about her ancestor, Anna Stone, who played an interesting part at Valley Forge. We actually had several authors who participated, and quite a few members of the SAR and DAR who shared about ways to find your ancestors and stories about ancestor roles in the revolution. It was a great event, and I've uploaded an audio recording of the event on Patreon. It's available for anyone who wants to listen. You don't have to be a paid supporter to listen to it. If you want to participate in next month's Roundtable Live, be sure to sign up for my mailing list on MailChimp. There's a sign-up form at the bottom of every single blog episode. Just go to blog.amrevpodcast.com, scroll down to the bottom, and look for the details to sign up. This week, we discussed the naval battle that took place in early September that ended up setting the stage for the final Allied victory over the British in Virginia. But it was a real mess. Despite having a larger fleet, de Grasse was essentially caught off guard with his fleet in the Chesapeake Bay and not properly in position to confront the British fleet when it arrived. The British had poor intelligence about how large the enemy fleet they would face was, They could have gotten there much sooner, and Admiral Graves failed to take advantage of the French fleet being out of position when the two first came into contact. If the British fleet had been led by a better admiral, who really pounded the larger fleet, it's quite possible that the French would have retreated. Admiral de Grasse saw his presence in Virginia as a sideshow, and not really as a critical mission. The French had regularly left their allies in a difficult situation in earlier battles, if they feared a significant loss of ships. Had de Grasse retreated, and the British Navy backed Cornwallis, we would have seen a very different outcome at Yorktown. Most historians who look at the campaign will say the Allies took some big risks, and that quite a bit of luck contributed to the Allied victory. The defeat of the British fleet was a big part of that luck. By the time Admiral Graves returned to New York after Yorktown, he had received orders to take his fleet to Jamaica. Graves wanted to return to London to defend his actions in the Yorktown campaign, so he got leave to return home. Graves was part of a series of parliamentary inquiries and finger-pointing over Yorktown. The Admiral made it through the controversies with his reputation largely intact. He received a promotion to Vice Admiral in 1787 and to Admiral in 1794. He remained actively engaged in naval battles with the French in the 1790s. My book recommendation this week is one of my favorites about the Yorktown campaign. It's called In the Hurricane's Eye, The Genius of George Washington and the Victory at Yorktown by Nathaniel Philbrick. I've recommended several Philbrick books in the past. I really enjoy his writing style. The book about the Yorktown campaign is no exception. It was first published in 2018. It's a little under 300 pages, not counting some extensive notes and index, and I definitely think it's a great read. The Battle of the Capes is just a part of the book, but Philbrick gives it great coverage. So if you want to read more about this topic, get a copy of In the Hurricane's Eye. My online recommendation is a great online article that specifically covers the Battle of the Capes, or what that article calls the Battle of Chesapeake Bay. It's a good detailed summary of the battle and includes very detailed information about the British ships involved. 
There's some information on the French ships too, but less detail. You can search for the article on morethannelson.com or use the direct links that I've included on my blog and website. My question this week asks, why did France involve itself in basically what was a civil war, the American Revolution, what would be the state of the British Empire immediately after subduing the uprising? Could France wait out the American Revolution and then take out the winner? Well, prior to the American Revolution, France and Britain were at war more often than not. These were just two enemies that were constantly fighting each other for hundreds of years, only taking breaks in between to rest and rebuild their military before going at it again. When the rebellion broke out in North America in 1775, France saw this as an opportunity to weaken its traditional enemy in Britain. This is something large powers do all the time. For modern examples, consider how the Soviets backed the North Vietnamese against the U.S. in the 1960s and 70s, or how the U.S. backed Afghan rebels against the Soviets in the 1980s. In the case of the American Revolution, a powerful Britain had always threatened France's colonial interests all over the world, so a weaker and more divided Britain would be much less of a threat to France's interests in the long term. If France had not involved itself, first through covert aid and later through a full alliance, Britain quite likely would have put down the rebellion within a few years. If France wanted to take out Britain, its best chance was while Britain was still involved in suppressing the colonial rebellion. If France had waited till the war was over, Britain would be relatively weaker than it would have been after years of peace, but not as distracted as it would be while the rebellion was still ongoing. Once the war was over, Britain could focus more on defeating France in a war, and it might even get the colonists to support its attacks on French colonies. That was what the French foreign minister warned the king of France in encouraging him to get involved in the war. So France did not want to just sit in the sidelines and wait to see what happened. It provided small amounts of covert aid to the colonists. It even got its traditional ally Spain to assist in that aid. And it allowed Britain to fight the war for three years before it finally decided to get involved and go to war with Britain after Britain had been weakened after those three years of fighting. France and Spain actually put together an invasion of Britain in 1780, something I covered in an earlier episode, and the main reason that that invasion failed and never happened was that a smallpox epidemic wiped out most of the fleet before it could reach Britain. Had that invasion actually taken place and been even somewhat successful, we could have seen a very different course of history. Now, the war, as it did work out, did drain British resources, but it ended up draining French resources even more. In addition, the spirit of American liberty that was celebrated in France to garner popular support for the war ended up spilling over and launching the French Revolution. So for the French king at least, the effort did not work as hoped. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The 
French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.